Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. You are listening to episode 169. Tonight, we are covering the top five films of 2002. Uh, this is wrapping up the year for us, our very last episode of 2022. And as we move into 2023, uh, next week, we'll be joined by friend of the podcaster, Ryan Make- Wellmaker, as a follow-up to his episode from November, where we'll be doing a deep dive on his probably favorite uh b movie uh called iced um from 1988 and then after that we will be starting off the year with a fresh five episode we'll be moving those to january and july uh, from this point forward and then we will start our 10 month long project where frank will develop his top five films of the years horror films of the years 2000 through 2009 we'll be doing those each month throughout the year of 2023 so i just want to give you a little heads up of where we're heading here soon but um focus on tonight frank with the top films of 2002 um how you feeling about the list (laughs) um you know i feel like it's a pretty good list i think there's some uh definitely some movies we've talked about before um on this list and a couple that we never have um and one movie which is a really weird top five edition because i'm going to um shit all over it and yet still find a way to praise why it's in our top five list rhetoric yes um frank rhetoric uh I'm going to shit on it as well, and it's just kind of like a belated Christmas present at this point um, <clears throat> to be able to shit on this movie because I didn't like it when it came out, and I think I like it even less now. Um, so that'd be fun. Um, <clears throat> and there's not going to be any tension over shitting on it either. So <clears throat> that's yeah, even better. Mutual, mutual shitting. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, 2002... Uh, what else did you did you consider for this list as runners up you know other contenders uh, there was some some other good stuff on this year um monsters ball i i really thought about putting on the list um i really enjoy that movie and i think it's got a couple of um really great performances in it but there's just something about it that i think doesn't quite elevate it um this neo-noir movie called salt and sea from that year and what um, is that it's uh, basically like a neo-noir about people that are addicted to meth or meth dealers. Okay. Um, it's Val Kilmer, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, Louis Guzman, a um, bunch of people in it. Oh, DJ Crusoe directed it. Okay. Um, it's really fantastic character piece, but it's just kind of a mess in terms mm-hmm. of its narrative. Um so i don't know i mean it's it's one of those movies where when you watch it like you find a lot to really like about it but i think it's kind of ultimately somewhat somewhat of a letdown maybe um just in terms of like the overall story but like with as much as you like neo-noir i would recommend definitely watching it and it's 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 a very um sobering look i guess you know it's like the characters are really well written and well acted but it's definitely like not the cool you know sure. hip like neo-noir that i guess we're kind of used to in the yeah 
post Tarantino world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but like in, I'm I I was I often would think about it watching Breaking Bad, like whether or not it was um in some way uh, an inspiration for some of the um some of the characters in in that show. Mm. Um, in particular the the Jesse character and um some of his yeah some of his his hanger on um uh, i thought about putting about a boy on the list i really enjoyed that movie um the who is rupert everett uh hugh grant or no hugh grant right the adaptation of the um shit i can't remember that dude's name either the guy that i really like a lot um uh nick nick hornsby yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. um that's a uh not really like a great movie but it's it's definitely um meh i don't know how to describe it it's it, it, it's heartwarming you know but maybe not like the greatest movie but still enjoyable okay um i put born identity on my short list just because i think that it's a pretty important movie for the time period um definitely influential in terms of like the filmmaking style and action movies i now forget all of them is that the first one mm-hmm. yeah okay it's identity ultimatum supremacy ultimatum is the one i'm thinking ultimatum was the, was the, the mean, third one right that no nah, isn't i don't oh know. no maybe the born ultimatum is the second one yeah i think and supremacy, supremacy is, is the, the third, third one, one. Yeah. yeah um the <clears> second <throat> one i remember really liking a lot um the first one i liked yeah <clears throat> i i enjoy the first one the most um because i think it's the least hyperkinetic of all mm-hmm. of them and mm-hmm. i'm not really a fan of that uh that filmmaking style like one of the things that we've complained about with movies like that is just the uh inability to really focus on the action because it's all quick cuts and sure um super fast uh moves and you can't really ever like get a good fix on, on what you're watching yeah i think it just bothered me less because it was so new then um that it didn't bother me quite as much then but i definitely don't like it now yeah i never watch those movies ever again so maybe there's a reason yeah you um you enjoyed them i think when we first oh yeah definitely yeah um i think you enjoyed them more than me yeah there's that i think it's the second one has that really great car chase sequence right yeah i think that's right yeah yeah. the first one has what would be and i think kind of like influence um the marvel netflix series hmm. with the terms of their uh fighting style um but there's that scene in the first one where um jason Bourne is fighting the people in uh the hallways and stairways of an apartment complex yeah with them, like jumping through windows and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i i think that's a really fascinating scene and it's just kind of like hurt by the um again like that hyperkinetic filmmaking yeah. but it's good performances and it's a solid you know um noir thriller like yeah. spy thriller or whatever mm-hmm. i'd you know yeah um i put road to perdition down just because i think that there's some great performances in it although i'm not a fan of um the movie itself like i don't necessarily think it's that well done um and i think it's kind of trite in points but it also is really uh really really great performances um hanks in particular is is pretty fantastic in that movie um i put signs down which is probably a controversial choice but i really i think that's one of Shyamalan's better movies 
and I think one of the more definitely like enjoyable and complete films even though it's kind of a silly premise um and that's also some really great performances there um a, a smaller movie that we've never talked about and i don't know what list it ever makes um top five creeps maybe but a one hour photo for one of the better um against character robin williams performances um maybe like the least indicative of his like general like filmography in this movie where he plays a an obsessed um cretin basically and it's uh mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 a pretty good movie um I feel, I feel like it's on a saved list somewhere i i have to, i couldn't find it in my phone but it's like it's somewhere i think that you actually have it on a top five for some future possible yeah episode. I mean, I think saying top five creeps is probably the best because I can yeah. think of a couple others to go with it, but it would definitely, mm-hmm. definitely make that list. Um, Igby Goes Down, which is a Kieran Culkin movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like, I don't know, like, I don't want to call it shoegaze, but um, sad millennial, like melodrama. Um, although I guess it wouldn't be millennial, whatever's after Gen X. Gen Y or whatever. Yeah, yeah millennials. Yeah. yeah. Um, Secretary, which again, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the movie itself, but it has some pretty <laughs> fantastic performances in it. So that movie I hadn't watched in a long time. And I watched it a couple years ago, and it's a hell of a lot funnier than I thought it was when I was like 22 or whatever, 23. Mm. Um, it actually has like this really. Uh, really kind of like a like low-key like um sorry uh, like kind of like a i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say like um undercurrent of being uh i can't think of my words upending of society's like norms Mm. and expectations and it's actually fucking hilarious like once you realize like what it's trying to do it's actually really really funny at times yeah um it's been a while since i've seen this maybe i should it's a, it's definitely a thing I think that's like it wouldn't make your top five, but it's definitely better than I thought it was twenty years ago, and might be worth just giving another shot once sometime if you're just not doing anything. Yeah, it's on Showtime or Stars, I think one of those. Hmm. Okay. It pops up on my HBO recommended list um, on occasion. Um, I put the ring down, uh, even though we've talked about that movie before, and I don't know that it would. It's really like a best of list but i think it's a really important movie and definitely a movie that um kind of kick-started the japanese horror craze in the united states um yeah. frida the salma hayek movie yeah um another really just great performance um Another one that I don't know is necessarily like a good movie in terms of the direction, but enjoyable in terms of watching her. Um, she's she's pretty fantastic in it. Um, I put Eight Mile down. I'm a really big fan of Eight Mile. Yeah. Um, again, it's it's mostly just him. Like he's pretty fascinating in it to watch, um, especially at that kind of early age where he was really coming into his own as a um 
like I guess he was already famous, but he wasn't like as you know generally considered to be like one of the greatest rappers of all time at this point, and he hadn't really achieved that yet. So, an interesting look at you know his um the fictionalized account of his early life or whatever. Yeah, and um, I'm saying Basinger is really good in it too in that supporting role. <clears throat> And then finally, a uh, movie that probably should have made this list, but I really wanted to talk about the number five movie and forgot that the number four movie we had already talked about. <laughs> um, uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Um, Sam Rockwell, uh, comedy spy thriller, I guess. Like indie comedy spy thriller. Um, really interesting premise. Uh, great performance by him. Um, a movie that we watched, I think you and I watched it together in the theater. No. Oh, I sit after and watched it then because I was gotcha. working for Regal at the time. But You told us it was good. We all watched it at Chuck's house. One that I was surprised by and hadn't really expected to enjoy as much as I did, but was really impressed by it. So, Yeah, and that was um, that was Clooney's directorial debut, right? I believe it was his directorial debut. I mean, it's definitely his. He directed it, so. Yeah. Oh, Kaufman. Hmm. Kaufman wrote that. I don't think I. I don't think I remembered that or knew that. Um, one or the other. Um. <clears throat> yeah. No. I. I've been. It's a movie I've been actually been meaning to go back and check out again. But it's also one of those movies that I. I'm hesitant to check out for some reason because yeah. I. I. I wonder, I really like it, so I wonder if I might not like it after all this time, so I, I just haven't yet. But You know, it's you know it's similar to, for me, is um, Charlie Wilson's War. Hmm. Um, as a movie that I think in the immediate moment that I saw it, I really enjoyed it and mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. super into it, and I don't know that I could ever recreate that moment in terms of right wanting to see it again, so... Yeah, that's a good. That's another good one for something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, just a, a movie that I went into with no expectations. I didn't really know anything about it, except for having seen a few trailers, and then was so almost like immediately impressed by it and walked away from it with such a good feeling that I think that's enough. Some movies I can watch over and over, and some movies that just um, just the one time I think is enough for me. Yeah, it's funny because it's like I saw that and I don't think I really knew Rockwell that much by this point. And so it's like somebody I was always really excited about, like him doing a movie and his career. And I I don't know if that's a. I feel disappointed, I think. That he hasn't really done like much else. Yeah, I mean, he's done he's done plenty. It's just that he. I don't think he's done anything that much that's good for him. yeah. Um, no, I I don't know. I can't even name like five Sam Rockwell movies. I don't think so. He was in that fucking Portergeist remake. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, he he's been in some things that are all right. But uh, he he I don't know. Um, but he's really great in that. So yes, if is. you've never seen Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, it's um it's definitely worth watching. And that was also the transition, even though it's a small role of Clooney starting to become more the Clooney of the 2000s than Clooney of the 90s in terms of his right. acting style. Um, it's almost like Clooney perfects 
the 90s acting style in out of sight and then like starts to transition into um lifting his eyes away from the fucking floor and like actually acting um in the 2000s and that it feels like that movie was like really the trend the first time i noticed that Clooney was like starting to develop more as an actor um and not just use his kind of you know handsome charm um that he overused i think in the 90s um so that's another good really supporting good supporting role there all right so you want to go on the number five on your list frank or you have any thoughts about 2002 what's your mind what what do you what's going on in 2002 like you know are you watching trying to think so you're watching a lot of movies back then right oh two this might have been the era where I was more reading a lot of books than mm-hmm. watching a lot of movies in O2. Um, let's see. No, you know, I was just working a lot. Yeah. O2, I would have been working, like, I was all over the place. And that was when Frankie was really young and we were living, me and his mother and him were in Elkton. Mm-hmm. Um, so playing video games and listening to music um playing fable probably I can't something long i can't remember what year that was those lines are probably more ps2 than anything else mm. ps2 and, and xbox um i don't know i can't remember but playing video games and yeah i guess i was watching a decent amount of movies because that was um that was really the start of the i mean not like dvds have been out for a while but that was the start of the boom of collector's edition dvds and also like really inexpensive movies you could buy for like 10 or 12 dollars um so yeah and just being a young dad i mean you know raising a kid like and working a thousand hours a week because i was working for the the movie theater at the time Mm mm-hmm um, I was all over the place in O2, probably. I would have been Brandywine and um, Newtown Square, Edgemont, whatever, People's Plaza. Um, yeah, I was in New Brandywine, Jersey. Because that was Attack of the Clones, right? Yeah, I was yeah. in New Jersey in 2002 for a little while. It was it was a lot. Yeah. 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 All right. So... Number five on your list is Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. It stars Leo DiCaprio, Daniel Day-Lewis, Cameron Diaz, Liam Neeson, Jim Broadbent, Henry Thomas, Brendan Gleeson, John C. Riley, et cetera, et cetera. Um, big cast to it. 72% from critics, 81% from audiences. Um, Want to tell us uh, just a little bit about this movie and uh, why it made this list? put it on this list because i think that of all the performances of this year and maybe of the 2000s um daniel day lewis's bill the butcher is like just absolutely captivating and brilliant and transformative um and i think that that lewis kind of pulls from this performance for a there will be blood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an element of Bill the Butcher in that character, but just the fact that he contorts himself and moves himself in such a way 
and affects his speech where he's fascinating and likable and menacing and you have empathy for him and you, you despise him. I mean, it's it's crazy like how because it's not necessarily it's not a well-written movie and there's a lot of the clunky dialogue in this movie um which and i want to talk about it when we talk about the movie itself because i think I, I have some ideas behind it but it's like here's this guy and it's not to say there's other not other good performances in this movie because brendan gleason is really good in his role um that's really about it it's really yeah. just gleason and yeah. Um, Daniel Day Lewis. Henry Thomas is fine, but I mean, he's just given eh. such bad material to work with. I think. Yeah, it's it, it's a bad character. Yeah. But I watched this movie the other day, and it's what two hours and thirty some minutes long. Um, and it it definitely feels like two hours and thirty some minutes, two at least. Yeah. But every time you have Daniel Day Lewis on the screen, which is probably about. 45% of the movie is him. Mm-hmm. It's just so enthralling to watch the performance. Yeah. And it's a shame that like the first time you see it, you don't even notice the bad, like the clunky dialogue and the just the weird shit that like Scorsese or not because he didn't write it, but that they have these characters saying. Because Lewis is just so there's a scene where he's draped in the American flag, um, sitting next to the um, Leo Leo DiCaprio character, um, who has just had sex with the um, Cameron Diaz character, who's been Bill the Butcher's like paramour, really, for like years, um, or at least like some length of time, and he basically like raised her from a like an orphaned child to be like his i don't know sex kitten or whatever it's really Mm kind of like disgusting oh yeah and they definitely don't do enough to like delve into that idea and she has almost like some stockholm syndrome with it where she's like you know he didn't touch me until i wanted him to touch me um but him talking about his father and america and his idea of like what makes makes the country great and what basically like revealing his affection and his paternal instincts towards DiCaprio's character. It's just so compelling. Like it's such a great monologue that this man performs. And when you think like, when I think about that scene, um, cause that's, that's really the scene in, when I, in my head, when I think about that performance, like that's sure. the one, even though there's so many other great scenes with him. Yeah that's the one that always comes to mind and in the interim years that i've seen this movie which has probably been 12 or 13 years since i watched gangs in new york um i've conflated that scene in my mind to him like almost this like mythic proportion where i've actually made the scene better in terms of the direction (laughs) Uh where he's actually got like a whole american flag draped over him and it's like spilling on the floor and there's this like light shining down on him mm-hmm. from above it, it, it's just it's crazy like how wrong i remembered the scene mm-hmm. um because the performance is so great and it's a weird instance where 
everything else is so bad and yet this one thing is so great that you can still watch the movie and take something like good away from it even though and this is where we'll get into the actual like dissection of (laughs) gangs in new york but Mm -hmm. even though everything else is in my opinion just really flawed and it has a lot of deep deep deep-rooted problems both because of scorsese's directorial style and just the fact that they force these accents on these people that aren't native speakers of the language and none of them are really adept at doing the accents although dicaprio does an okay like pseudo irish um Mm -hmm. but it's still like at times just isn't great um but to finish the praise it's it's day lewis is just amazing in it um there's a really great scene towards the end where brendan gleason who has recently been elected sheriff of the five points which is the um slum that all these like ne'er-do-wells live in and he's been like the baddest man but he's never had to face anybody really is the feeling he's just like killed people for money for his whole life and now he's the law and he's always kind of threatened bill the butcher with you know someday we'll have our our reckoning where we'll figure, we'll see who like the better man is and he has the chance and you can see the panic in him when he's faced with the knowledge that he has to fight bill where he's then like sinks into his authority to get out of it and he turns his back and he's basically like oh come in and we'll we'll chat about it like gentlemen and bill just like cleaves his back with his butcher knife and it's like gleason's this man that's been all like tough you know stony demeanor the whole like i mean not that he's been in the movie a whole lot but like enough times where like you've seen him just as this like really this ultimate like mercenary badass like to be able to emote with his facial expressions and the slight stutter in his voice like this man who's really just petrified of the idea of having to actually face his own mortality um it's 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 a really brilliant scene and you know again like he's almost a cartoon it's like it's like johnny depp wants to be daniel day lewis in gangs in new york so bad when he's portraying like whatever like his weirdo goth characters like the the motion of the body and the way he holds his shoulders and the way he moves his hips when he walks and the slight cock to his head and the uh, eternal like like squint like all of it's just it's it's a really fantastic like performance and that scene is amazing so gangs of new york and we're going to talk about this longer probably than some other ones because a couple of these movies we've talked about at length on previous podcasts and there's not a whole lot to say i think in addition to what's already been said but we'll you know go through them but for for this movie you pose the question to me, and it's probably the best question that can be asked is, how is the man that made movies like mm-hmm. Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Goodfellas the man that made this movie? And this movie's only, what, 11 years removed from Goodfellas, right? Because Goodfellas is 91, I think. 90, 91, yeah, something like that. So this isn't, like, just barely a decade after what's arguably one of, like, maybe the five best like mafioso movies in history Mm -hmm. sure and mean streets which is one of my favorite movies of the 70s taxi driver which i gained a whole new respect for 
you know, watching that movie when we talked about it, whenever we talked about it last year, I guess. To, to see so first of all there's so many scenes in this movie that are filmed in this weird like almost like MTV-esque slow motion it doesn't even make any sense like he films the opening fight scene so they set up the opening scene which is a fight between the dead rabbits which is Liam Neeson's um, pro-Irish gang and the natives which is bill the butchers um pro you know natural born americans gang basically right and it's the most maudlin drawn out it's almost like a joke like like a a parody of braveheart maybe or something like when they're walking through these warrens because i don't know what else to call them but i guess that's probably the best word yeah like where these dead rabbits they live underground in these like you know these tunnels and he's walking past with his kid and i can't remember i don't know who that kid is but that kid is like the most obnoxious like irish kid ever (laughs) um he looks like a rabbit really (laughs) um And so the kids like seeing all these like scary like tough guys and mm-hmm. you know it's filmed and it, it feels like like the haunted mansion at Disney World or something the way he films it like everybody's like making these super exaggerated like snarly faces and mm-hmm. cackling and the cameras like here's some rack focus and mm-hmm. you know here we're gonna like oh we're gonna pan up real quick to like this guy's face and he's going like boogity boo because he's a scary killer and it feels like it goes on forever and then there's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie um and honestly what i think might be the best filmmaking in the movie which is the dead rabbits emerge from this ridiculous fucking like burning church or whatever this pit of hell to come out into the snow and everything's like quiet and empty and they walk out and the only sound is their footfalls on like snowy concrete which is really to me a a really effective filmmaking technique to use that um the quiet and like the fresh fallen snow is always like really powerful Mm -hmm. um and the camera pans up and you see you know the dead rabbits there and then you see the natives coming out like past this building that's obviously like been burned down and they come from like these three different streets and they're obviously so much more you know well equipped and like well manned than the dead rabbits and you know then the dead rabbits like other ethnic group immigrant um cohorts they come out of like their hidey holes and the two forces are staring at each other and you know bill the butcher evokes like whatever some ancient art of law of combat which is ridiculous to hear even in that setting but whatever like it still Mm -hmm. is like a decent scene and liam neeson accepts and whatever Mm -hmm. and there's so much tension that's built in that scene and again like the quiet of the snow and just the emptiness of the world with the exception of like these violent killers that are facing each other is it's almost like a perfect scene in that one like small like two minute instance Mm -hmm. and then they start to fight each other and it just all falls apart it's the most poorly filmed chaotic 
mess of shit with slow motion and there's this this woman who's apparently based hellcat maggie i think is what the name of the real woman was when i did when i looked into it who's wearing like razor claws in her hands and literally like it's it's like a scene on a cat woman that's how bad it is (laughs) where she like leaps in the air and they have her like knees up so she's Uh like a bouncing cat yes and she lands on this guy but it's in like this weird almost like hyper grainy slow motion that they have her jump it's like a comic book panel and she's like clawing at this guy and then there's fights and she hasn't they have her jump like tobias jumps on like i think like joe back in arrested development as a as a comedy which is a comedy (laughs) but yeah it comes off as like very comedic in the way that it looks um the other thing besides the slow-mo that they're doing here is not just slow-mo they do slow-mo and they quickly speed it up and it reminds yes. me of like a 300 type um what's his face schneider yeah like does something like that and it's i hate i hate the effect of it and it doesn't even stop with just the action scenes there's a chase scene that happens after the kind of like a little chase that happens after the uh-huh. the action and they do it there too yeah. and it's just like oh my god like and i think it's especially i hate the effect anyway but it's especially bad to me for a period piece because now you have the period and you're not allowing the viewer to right. get into the period by filming more classically you're filming classically and then doing this modern day editing it, it and it, it really kind of drains the grittiness and the mm-hmm. grotesquery of what's happening here with these people fighting each other right so the combat ends and liam neeson gets killed um by bill you know who that and that and that's actually like once like bill once he he calms down from trying to show like this epic combat and it focuses on bill like moving through the crowd to go kill liam neeson like that's his singular purpose it actually like again there's there's some tension there and like you're kind of invested in the whole thing because liam neeson is a good actor and daniel day lewis is a phenomenal actor and they're acting off of each other and it works you know and scorsese is able to capture liam neeson who's you know whatever irish by by birth so has an irish accent that makes sense and daniel day lewis who just is a chameleon he can do any accent he wants so he's doing this snarly like low-bred brooklyn accent or whatever and he murders him and you know he drops him down and it's very tender almost which makes it like even more kind of grotesque and then he does the you know ears and noses are the trophies of the day but no one shall touch this man like all of it it's just really well done and then again to your point they have the thing with the child dicaprio character um amsterdam getting the knife and fighting his way free and escaping from these people and they just do this ridiculous like almost like evil dead-esque like chase scene Mm -hmm. back into the warrens where there's all these people all of a sudden even though they were just in this like climactic you know apocalyptic combat but everybody's like okay um i don't know and so i was trying to think i was i was thinking about this a lot today at work um, because I knew that this was going to be the movie that I wanted to talk about the most, even though this is the best of 2002 and we're going to shit like on this movie. 
I was wondering if he was trying to invest an almost supervillain quality to the characters in this movie to make them feel less like real people and more like almost like a comic book caricature or like a pulp novel caricature. Mm-hmm. You know, because you got the um, the little Irish dude who was originally one of the dead rabbits but now like works for bill and Mm -hmm. hellcat maggie who's like an opium addict and a madam and um the john c Riley character especially right where it feels like he's channeling his comedic performances in that role more so than his like dramatic performances and he's got this friggin like andy cap like scowl on his face the whole time where he looks like a cartoon it's just it's they're such off-putting poorly realized characters yeah. that are only there to advance the scene either with dicaprio or um uh day lewis eventually like that's all those characters exist for is for those two actors to have something to do when they're not talking to each other like yes. someone else to lord over with their whatever acting prowess or the coolness of their character um one of the worst things in the movie is the and i don't think cameron diaz is a bad actress but not the role that this woman should have been in um she's bad in this but i think it's just a tad unfair how everybody talks about that being like it the bad thing about this movie mm-hmm. and, I, and, and i say that it's only on and i know that you're not saying that but i know a lot of crit- i've read a lot of criticism of this and it's like a lot of people always focus on how how poor diaz in this movie and look yes she's not right for this role and she's not good in it but that character did her no would have done no actress right. any favors because it is shoehorned in and fucking pointless and it's a bad well, character and it's a bad st- subplot of the whole movie and <laughs> Not only that, and this might not be my place to say, but I feel like it's really a very weak female character just in general. Like, it's yeah. it's supposed to be this saucy, independent, you know, like, sneak thief that looks out for herself and steals and is willing to, like, you know, fight this you know whatever then but it's still like the most beautiful woman in the city and she's always just at the whim of a man yeah like it's if it's not bill then then she's with amsterdam and well the thing just... is it doesn't feel like that's commentary either you know i mean at no nothing feels like commentary honestly in this movie to me no um, it's just bad writing it's yeah it's 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 men writing a woman that don't know how to write a woman and the only thing they can think to make that woman do is be in love right like she's she's the harlot with a heart of gold you know that amsterdam can't help falling in love with and bill it's it's funny because there's an interesting parallel to this in um the number three movie on the list but that movie does it so much better Mm -hmm. um in the way that it's portrayed than than this movie does because there's actual psychological depth yeah well and also because it's based off of like an an amazing novel that sure um but anyway so that's a big problem is 
not just her performance, but just the character itself and how poorly written and you know, I mean, there's that subreddit, the men writing women, and it's it's a perfect example of that. It's like plucky but love struck and ultimately unable to function without the protection of a man, you know, because even though she can stick up for herself, she still is um still needs to wait for DiCaprio and she needed Bill to save her from a life of poverty. So anyway, so that's bad. There's a scene later in the movie during so I I was trying to read some of the history around this time period and the actual gangs themselves. Um, And there's some interesting stuff with how the draft riots actually happened because they existed in the city. And I, I, I know that I'm misreading this and I think it's just, just personal bias because I was just so annoyed at the movie at this point, but I almost feel like, Scorsese is in some way like sympathizing with these people like brutalizing black people in New York City Mm. like I don't I definitely don't find it to be a condemnation of it like it's definitely meant to be you know at the end it's like oh you know flowers for the graves of all these brave protesters and it's like dude like you just showed them murdering and like lynching like you know like freed slaves or whatever in the streets like we shouldn't you shouldn't be forcing us into a situation where we want to feel like empathy for these these cretins and just i don't know like there's this huge amount of i think like weird classism to it too because it's definitely scorsese trying to shit on people like um horace greeley and uh um, I can't remember what ridiculous name they give those people, like the Schnecktides or whatever, Schnecter <laughs> X or something. Um, Schnecter rectums. <laughs> um, but all the riot scenes are so poorly filmed. It's it's just a mess, like all of it. I there's a scene where the small Irish dude that's like defected to join Bill, who they show to be like an absolute racist just because they got to give you a reason to to hate the man um even though he's already a despicable character anyway but whatever where he's running at a regiment of of armed yes soldiers and they shoot him and uh-huh. they show him get shot like yeah I, I swear to god like four times maybe or something from three different angles with like his body bending backwards from the impact of the you know fucking bullets awful and it's, it, was, it was the most laughable scene in the whole movie to me and i i swear like so correct me if i'm wrong but i think here's this is one of my big like i come to bury scorsese not praise him moments <laughs> and i felt this way increasingly for the past like 20 years mm-hmm. scorsese shits on stuff like like publicly shits on things like marvel movies and superhero movies and big screen like popcorn films blockbusters whatever but all this man has done his entire career and particularly the last 30 years is fetishize criminals and try to portray criminals in a way that are cool you know like oh he's cool he's got like an attitude and these these criminals like 
they're above the law and you know maybe they get their just desserts in the end because they die but look how cool they were doing all these things until they got to that point like there's no condemnation of the criminal for the crimes he commits there's just i don't even know like this almost passive aggressive like romanticism i guess of like the criminal element so here's the, this this bald fucking irish dude he's a racist he's a murderer he's an idiot he's a loud mouth and he's a bully mm-hmm. and yet it's framed in a way where it's supposed to be like here's the symbolism of the dying of an age where <laughs> these men were men and they lived by their own creed and maybe they weren't like you know the cleanest or best people but they were still someone to be admired in a way like like all that shit it's just bullshit well let, let me add on too it's it's not just like the fetishizing criminals that you're right and it has something to do with money as well in a lot of them um about like trying to show like these people living it rich and stuff like that which he does in goodfellas and he does it all the time but i mean like wolf of wall street the aviator like he he, he, in the past 20 years he he definitely does that shit and it has something to do with money so there is a classist element i think to a lot of his stuff but the other thing is and you bring this up i'm surprised you didn't bring it up because what this scene that you're talking about is also another like thing with scorsese is for all the thing he talks about, like mainstream movies and comic book movies and all these things, like which is like a lesser form of art, right? Like in his mind, um, like and what comes with lesser forms of art is like the is the blunt force, you know, uh, use of emotion and all these other things. Like it lacks subtlety. There is no fucking subtlety in oh, Scorsese no. at all in like the past. You're right, the past like 25 years, almost like the past like 30 years, I guess. Since, uh, since Goodfellas, yeah, pretty much since Goodfellas, and it's like, and and I'm interested in watching Goodfellas again at some point. See if maybe some of this stuff is in there as well. No, it it, it it's different. It it holds yeah. up a lot more. Okay, so but it's like the, it's it, you always bring it up with The Departed, like at the very it's, end. The rat. the rat rat running in front of the fucking golden dome yeah you know what you know what happens in this movie there's a scene where there's flames like rising up around fuck what is it god damn it it might be something to build the butcher's like house or something mm-hmm. but it's just like he shows like oh it's the fires of hell like look at them rise around this religious iconography or whatever and and is and look it gets a bill bill scene the daniel day lewis scene when he's talking to amsterdam while he's in bed even the flag is a little bit much if it weren't for daniel day lewis nailing that goddamn monologue right like in, in the hands of a lesser performance a lesser actor having that flag draped around him it gets ignored like and it adds to the scene because of the performance if it were a lesser actor we'd be sitting here bitching about like how unsubtle him being wrapped in that american flag oh yeah well we never would have talked about it right but it's there's so many small things like that like yeah i'm trying to think there was another scene where something happened 
and I, I legitimately laughed out loud and it was so inappropriate. And I really, I, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was another thing where Scorsese just had a thing and it was so obvious what that thing represented, but you know that yeah. old fucking prick is sitting there like, yeah, like I'm really like, I'm, 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 I'm showing the symbolism of what I'm trying to portray. And you know, this is the same problem I had with fucking the Irishman and um, the departed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like all Shutter, talk about another one lacks subtlety too is fucking shutter Island. And that's another movie that's sure. saved by performances. Yep. yep. And that that's the one thing that I'll give Scorsese. Like, as much as I cannot stand most of his movies in the past, I don't know. And which, as much as I love his movies, but Scorsese is a man that pulls amazing performances out of actors. Sure. And even though he doesn't get it out of DiCaprio here, and I don't think DiCaprio is bad in this movie by any stretch. No, he's not bad. I just, I think it's a really poorly written character, and I don't think it's very, I think it's very cliche, like the whole revenge story thing. Mm -hmm. I I don't know how else you tell that story to make it more interesting, but there has got to be a better way that you could have told it. But anyway. But every other movie with Leo, like he pulls a good performance out of him. Like, um, yeah, I mean, he's he. It, they definitely have a great relationship, yeah. and they definitely know how to work together. Mm-hmm. And again, like this Daniel Day Lewis performance is phenomenal, and just one of my favorite performances, I think, of the past like twenty or twenty plus years. Yeah, but it's still watching this movie again, and this is the third time I think I've watched it straight through. Um, including the first time in the theater, it everything loses a little bit of luster upon like further viewing because you become increasingly less shocked by how great like he is and just so fixated on how bad everything else is around it. Yeah. And it really is, and unfortunately, like it's 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 a crap movie it's it's boring it's um unfocused at times it, it it's got really bad dialogue it's got very fake looking sets most of the time like for a period piece it feels and that's another thing that's so amazing and I, how long have we been fucking talking about this guy? <laughs> it's a it's amazing like it's one of the things that i love the most about that first opening scene like once they get out into the snow is that it's just it's simple and it feels real and it's got Mm -hmm. weight and mood and like it's just it's good you know and it's like but we've talked about this many times you know there's a scene in fucking house of a thousand corpses that rob zombie just nails with walton goggin like you know Mm -hmm. the elevated camera above walton Mm-hmm. and everything else in that movie is trash you know right. so right yeah and, and i the last thing i want to say and, I, and I'm, I'm done with this and i'll be done with it but it's like that riot scene at the end i have never seen a riot scene that is so static and is lacks so much energy yeah it's like the fight in the beginning he's using this zippy like like slow-mo into like fast forward like you know and it's all this stuff and it's like 
he's trying to at least add energy to that fight. It fails, I think, but it, it, he's trying. It is just static shots most of the time. Like throughout just cut cut. Right. Static shot. Oh, like, here's a here's cut. a wood cutting from like some, some newspaper back in 1890. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you. here's a shot of a building. It's on fire. Here's a shot here's, of this. This really happened. And I can't remember who directed that episode of Oz, but it's like, you know, the prison riot in the end of the first season of Oz is the is the riot that I when I think of somebody filming a riot that feels like it has fucking force to it and energy and chaos like in like an like 20 minutes of an oz episode like just completely does every aspect of a riot better i know it's a confined space and it's not like city-wide like this is but you can do something to show some fucking energy here and there's nothing it is the blandest riot you will ever see on film i think it is just not good and it's it's pretty bad yeah. It's just boring. So here's here's what I think the problem there is, is that he filmed this movie primarily in um Cinecetta, I guess is how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is an Italian like sound studio. You know, like it was it wasn't filmed on location or anything. And granted, I understand you're not gonna film a period piece in sure. you know, downtown Brooklyn or whatever. Right. The Bronx, wherever the fuck. Um but still, I mean, like, it feels like sets. Like, all of it feels, to your point, very static, very fake, very maudlin a lot of times. It, it's all very cartoony. It's just, it's a mess. And the only reason that people, I think, I think the Scorsese, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Like, you look at, you look at, our generation's like greatest directors so let's let's like the top three and you got tarantino you got paul thomas anderson you got wes anderson maybe i'm just to like have three out there go back and look at like scorsese coppola paul schrader nicholas rogue i don't know like to have the wes anderson like analogy those guys have all fucking like just fallen off like they're terrible and this group of like they just they have nothing left to say like all of those guys scorsese coppola even like rogue and schrader to a point like they just the only the only boomer the only boomer always comes back to him only boomer has anything left to say i think in this fucking world is david lynch and it's because he doesn't act like a fucking boomer well yeah it's because he's a fucking lunatic (laughs) right I mean, but I all, would argue but all those that rumors are like that. I would argue that until he died, that that Cassavetes like was still. Mm. And honestly, I Jim Jarmusch like his his last couple of movies have been kind of crap, but he's like for a long time was still making like compelling um, films. But yeah, yeah, Lynch Lynch is Lynch is the man when it comes to just still being relevant and still being interesting to this day. Yeah um but yeah like scorsese just crap for for 30 years so the subtitle of this podcast top five movies in 2002 is fuck martin scorsese <laughs> um yeah yeah it's and it's a, and, and the thing is is like i i don't i didn't want to do this to some degree like i i, I didn't want this to be like 
the way I felt about Martin Scorsese by this point in my life because I loved Goodfellas when I was young and then going backwards I loved Taxi Driver and I love you know and I know you don't like it I I like Raging Bull like I think it's right I see artistry in Raging Bull I just am not a huge fan of the movie itself like there there's things I like you know from the guy and uh, a lot and I liked it especially when I was younger but starting with basically Casino it's just like uh, which is the first time I was like, what, the, what is this? Like, I don't like this. Like, um, so anyway, so the point I was trying to make was, and I completely forgot cause I got angry. Um, <laughs> Scorsese is just one of those guys where they're just, everyone is going to like fawn over him because they don't know what else to do. Uh-huh. Like they, it, it feels sacrilegious to say that the emperor has no clothes, but I mean like, yeah. This dude has not been a good director for a long time, and he's got this completely backwards-ass attitude about what movies are. Like, he thinks that unless you're making... And he's making trash, man. Like, he's making more trite, obnoxious bullshit with the same goddamn actors over and over. Mm -hmm. He may as well be directing Marvel movies, you know, because he's just doing the same thing. Right. Guys, Marvel movies would probably be worse problem um yeah it's and look i don't even think that a part of it is bad i think it's not as good as the source material for it but i don't think it's bad i just don't think it's great i just think it, i guess i think it's goodish like, yeah but it's goodish because of what it's based on sure and what it's based on i do think leo and damon do well in that movie and i think nicholson for all of his shtick does have a couple good scenes in it and um i'm actually more impressed with like baldwin um in the supporting role that he's in but um but yeah like it's just is he's a mess he's a fucking mess of a director um he uses this guy michael ballhouse uh <laughs> that um for a cinematographer and i mean the guy's got a fucking career to him man i mean he starts off with rainer warner fassbender um he does like the bitter tears of Peter von Kant, like with him, like he, um, marriage of Maria Braun, like he basically does like 10 movies with Fassbender, um, ends up hooking up with, um, directors like James Foley and John Sayles, and then moves on to Scorsese and does a lot of Scorsese's movies throughout his career, but also has other things to his credit, like, um, weird oddities, like what about Bob? Like he did the cinematography for, which, you know has a couple memorable scenes from a shooting standpoint um in it and uh he worked with copeland dracula which i you know whatever quiz show like you know shit like that i think there's all kinds of stuff in his filmography but this this is this the filmography like the the cinematography is like not even good in this movie yeah it all looks fake yeah yeah everything everything looks like it's on a say it looks like it's you complain in Excalibur that they're all ro- walking through the same like piece mm-hmm. of woods. Yes. I mean they're they're walking in the same fucking like two blocks of streets like over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> I think there was some other horror movie that I told you that I think that they used to use the same set and they were. You said it was through. Company of the Wolves was the same yes, set. As I, I'm positive Excalibur. it is. I'm positive yeah, it, it is. Makes me angry every time you say it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I it's just 
it's just not a good movie. I, I don't know. I would love to know what people see in this movie. Um, they feel like they have to like it. Yeah. Like, it's I mean, like everybody, that, everybody was marking out over King Kong when it first came out because it was Peter Jackson and they all love Lord of the Rings. And it's like, no, man, this movie's bad. Like, you don't. Yeah, and like this was a this is a like and this was a labor of love for Scorsese. He wanted to do this back in the seventies with De Niro and Meryl Streep. Um, people that probably would have helped elevate the material as bad as it is a little bit more, but um, but still, like I mean, like you spend so many years thinking about this movie, and this is what you, this is what you produce. Yeah. I kind of want to read the book now, though, honestly, because I was sort of interested in the ideas behind the characters as opposed to the way it was portrayed. Yeah, I think um, you're right. I think I think you're exactly right. I think critics don't know what to do with them, and I think audiences, because critics don't know what to do, they give either pray like like serious praise or faint praise to his movies often, and then audiences just kind of like follow along and be like, "Oh, yeah, it's 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 good." Like, um. It's a shame too, because I, I really, um, the stuff from the that the movie that's coming out like uh, this year, I guess, like um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Like I, I know the the story that that's based on, like the real life story. Um, I don't know the book; I never read it, but um, I know the real life story, and it's probably could be really fucking cool, um, if it were in the hands of somebody like um, Fincher or pt anderson or somebody mm -hmm. like that like um but it's like you know leo and de niro and plemons and brendan frazier and it's like and i should be really excited about it but i'm not like because he's he'll, he'll fuck it up like it's it'll it'll be decent at best and probably not even that um and that's a that's a sad state of affairs for the God, guy I I really feel like the podcast should just be over at this point. Cause, <laughs> I mean, we've already been talking for like an hour and fucking 10 minutes about a movie that we just shit on, on the best of 2002. So may as well like run through the rest of this shit. Right. I guess. I don't know. All right. So number four on your list is number three. Um, so we, we do need to deal with number four on your list real quick. Um, so number four on your list is, um, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, 97% from critics, 96% from audiences. Um, and we were trying to figure out before the podcast started, like, I feel like I've watched this in the last year. And like, I should have looked it up, I was saying. And and then we started to look it up, um, trying to figure out, like, when we talked about this movie. And when did we talk about it, Frank? We talked about it at exactly the same time last year on the 2001 Best of list, because... <laughs> It was released in Japan in 2001, which is the trick I used to get it on the list, mm -hmm. and then was released in America in 2002, which is the trick I used to get it on this list. Right. Um, so, but uh, I will say in 2002 was when we went to go see it. Yes, accurate. So should have probably not talked about it last year. Um, I don't know what it would have been replaced with at that time, but um, I was so hyped to talk about it at that point because I yeah. love it. It's right. a great movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just briefly, um, one of Miyazaki's best movies, one of the Gib my favorite Ghibli movies, um, next to Totoro and um, Mononoke and Kiki's Deliveries. I mean, like, uh, 
there's so many of his movies that are just fantastic um it's a really really powerful dark fairy tale um it's got a very strong brothers grim vibe to it and like classical brothers grim in terms of the um the darkness of the material and the fact that you know it's it's a young it's like a child in peril and learning their empowerment through you know their own whatever you want to call it like agency um beautifully animated um just a really great i don't know really great movie i think that's got strong appeal for both adults and children and i think is eminently watchable um by both so but yeah miyazaki the, the ghibli movies are one of those things where i really feel like you have to almost be like dead inside to um not enjoy those movies uh and i think there really is like a strong just beautifully innocent but not um that's what i'm looking for it recognizes that there's darkness and evil in the world but it also recognizes that there's good and there's you know power and like the innocence of of children and you know power and imagination so yeah great movie go listen to the 2001 yeah. list to hear us talk about it more at length yep. episode 133 top five films of 2001 is where we talk about more in depth i will just say quickly that when it's always one of the experiences i remember is going to see this movie it's with, a good experience with a, with a lot of us um borrowing um a Bar van, van. Bar Parker's van yes yep um and uh yeah uh that was a that was a good day i'm going to philly to go see this um yeah, definitely all right so let's go ahead and move on to number three number three so number three on your list is the quiet american adaptation from graham green novel is directed by philip noince and it stars michael kane brendan frazier and tihai yendo and it has an 87 percent from critics and a 72 percent from audiences so you want to tell us just a little bit about this movie and why it made the list uh so pretty faithful adaptation of um uh graham green's novel uh 1955 novel um it follows a love triangle that develops between uh, Michael Caine's character, who's a British expat journalist that's um, lived in Vietnam for a long period of time and is um, married in Britain, but has taken a Vietnamese mistress, uh, Fong. Um, Brendan Fraser, who's an American aid worker, ostensibly in the beginning of the movie, um, who's come to Vietnam to kind of like investigate the unrest and supposedly like look for ways to combat disease and then Fong who's a um, young Vietnamese lady um, who's involved with Michael Caine and is living mistress um, Frazier falls in love with Fong and makes a uh, initial like plea to take her away from Kane and marry her um, because her Kane can never marry her because he's married at home um it turns out that Frazier is actually, um, I don't know what you would call him, like an insurgent, kind of. 
that's helping the uh, the third force. So it's during like pre-Vietnam War era, uh, 1950s Vietnam, where um, the French were the occupying force and the communists were fighting against the French and Frazier is trying to create like a like help to build a third arm of I don't know what you call it like a third army basically um that's combating both of them by supporting um general T Tay I don't know how you say it T H E um and I don't know how explicit they make it but I mean he's he's central in hell I mean he's CIA um Brendan Fraser in that like I don't think they like come right out and actually state that but that's that was what the U.S government was actually doing at the time like was trying to manipulate things by having people go well, over and if i'm it's, it's been a really long time since i've read the book but uh fraser in the the fraser character in the novel pile um is working with the u.s government the cia that's in um vietnam mm-hmm. but is sort of like a solo agent that's supplying american weapons to him like he's almost like a black market arms dealer um, that's operating under the guise of being like, you know, the quiet American, the titular, um, you know, character of the novel mm-hmm. uh, by pretending to, um, you know, be this humanitarian. <clears throat> but it's basically supplying weapons that lead to terrorist attacks in Saigon. Um, so really great performances here by both Kane and Frazier. Um, it's an interesting look at the, the idea of the expat lifestyle of people that go and like spend long periods of time in these, um, third world Asian countries or foreign Asian countries, uh, that develop entire lives to the exclusion of like their lives back home. Um, Kane is in love with this woman but isn't able to really provide any kind of stability to her and because of their relationship and the fact that she's his mistress and he's married is preventing her from like kind of gaining legitimacy by being able to marry someone you know like actually be like someone's wife um kane is also his character is very um i mean selfish i guess self-absorbed um and petty uh to the point where when it's never really about so kane finds out that fraser is like this double agent almost and is supplying like these weapons to this this insurgent group and basically leads to his murder um as a way to get fong back um because he can't do it through his own you know because he can't take her back by marrying her by like wooing her romantically he has to you know basically like get her her um paramour murdered um and does so by leaking information to uh the vietnamese that he's involved with the i can't remember what they call the the army or the third like force um and ends up getting them stabbed um and then even though He's suspected by uh, the French um, law enforcement of being responsible for Pyle's murder. No one can prove that he was involved. So he is sort of not exonerated, but definitely doesn't have any kind of repercussions for doing it. 
Um, it ends up with Fong again at the end. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. So I was trying to watch this movie on Pluto and Pluto is the worst fucking streaming service ever. So I, I started watching it on Wednesday and then ended up having to like Frankie was home and I was doing other stuff with him and ended up not finishing it. And so I went to start it again tonight and it would play for like five minutes and then it would stop. And then it would go back to the moment that I stopped it on Wednesday. And I would have to fast forward to the, when it stopped and watch five more minutes and then it would stop again and go back to the moment. So I basically had to try and watch this movie in like 15 increments Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where, so Pyle at one point, before you know about his involvement with the, um, with Tay's uh, insurgency, um, goes to Michael Caine's apartment with Fong there to tell her, like, look, like he can't, he can't ever like take care of you. I'm in love with you, and I want to marry you. Um, and it's a really like uncomfortable and sad mm-hmm. scene. Um, but then I couldn't watch any more of it. So I know the book pretty well. Um, I was a pretty big aficionado of Graham Greene for a long time. Um, really around, around when this movie came out is when I was reading a lot of, a lot of his books. Um, his, his novels translate really well to the screen when filmmakers have the courage to film them the way they're written. Um, particularly like our man in Havana and the comedians. Um, this one, uh, end of the affair. They're Graham Greene really unflinching look at like the complexity in in relationships and just how dark like people can be when it comes to trying to sort of like I don't know like protect their love i guess at any cost and um kane is really great in this movie i think as somebody that there's no real central protagonist here like there's negative aspects to both fraser's character pile um who ostensibly is this nice like charming almost kind of like podunk um humanitarian that ends up being this callous man that's willing to like you know cause the death of innocence in order to further his like ideological beliefs and then Kane who's a guy that what's there there's an amazing line like they're in a village early on um where there's been a massacre of Vietnamese people and the French are claiming that it was the communists that did it and then you find out that the communists claim it was the French that did it but no one's willing to own up to the fact that they murdered this entire village and both pile and Kane are like horrified by what they're seeing. And the line in, in voiceover narration is my indifference and his, I can't remember what it is. It was really good. Like just that, like both of them, you know, are ill prepared for the actuality of like what war is. Um, and the horrors of like what can happen to the innocent like in war um so yeah just i wish that i could have actually watched this movie again because i really loved it the first time i saw it 
Um, I think that it was, I know that Brandon Frazier's gotten a lot of praise in the past couple of years for doing some really good roles and kind of like coming out about, you know, his own like mental health struggles and just um, struggles with like his body image and stuff. And there's a lot of positivity towards Brendan Frazier and for good reason. Cause I think that he's generally like a good dude and um, but he's getting roles now where he's being able to be more than just like a beefcake um, pretty boy, mm-hmm. which is for a long time, what Brendan Frazier was, you know, was kind of like an action star crazily enough. Um, but this was one of the first times where I saw him where I really thought, like, man, like, this guy, like, legitimately is a great actor and has, like, some real talent in him. Um, so if you can find a way to watch it other than watching it on Pluto, or if you have a better <laughs> experience than me, um, I would say that you should definitely check it out. It's also beautifully filmed. Uh, Philip Noyce does a great job of capturing kind of the, like, the beauty and the um history of vietnam um definitely a movie that one of the one of the things that earlier on in my life you know because obviously 20 years old at this point um when i was younger that made me really want to go visit um southeast asia and like see like those places and one of the reasons why i mean i didn't go to vietnam but ultimately went to thailand was because of how beautiful like this movie was and just how much i loved like the but also, like, the, this movie is, like, incredibly, like, dirty at times. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel, like, really physically uncomfortable in watching it. Yes. Um, Just in the, like, the abject poverty of these provincial villages that they're going to. And again, I think it's a really unflinching look at the idea of, like, like, for lack of a better word, like, sex tourism that exists in places like this where these, you know, older men just go and... It's trying it couldn't only being done in novel form back then because that's not stuff you were going to talk about like uh in film in 1955 whatsoever really um it took a long time to be able to kind of talk about those things i think um in the general public so. yeah i mean green was really unflinching and yeah he had a journalist mindset too it's almost like to me a better hemingway in a lot of ways in mm-hmm. the sense that like he had the eye and keen insight of somebody that had a journalistic bent, but um, Graham Greene is, in my opinion, a much more um, a, like capable and accomplished fiction writer than uh, Hemingway, um, but with similar ideas, you know, and just the examination of like the human condition and um, retaining your humanity in, in wartime and um, how you can do a job that might seem disgusting to other people but still be a person and still you know have positive traits um so yeah definitely worth watching and really really great performances by yeah by cats. um fraser gets uh fraser's gets pointed out for not being very good in this um oddly enough in terms of some of the criticism of this movie um even among positive reviews um <clears throat> And I, I don't exactly know why. I mean, I, 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 it could be because he's being compared to Kane, um, in this. But I, I don't think you have the the full extent of the Kane character without Frazier's character. I think Frazier comes in and does his job extremely well, which is to present this idealist and make him extremely likable, um, 
throughout most of the movie until you start learning like you know what he's capable of and what his ulterior motives are in order to be this kind of young idealistic youthful foil to Kane in order to get to the core of that character which is this like smoldering kind of uh manipulative bitter older man who's can't get what he wants you know out of his life completely and it creates this like real um psychologically tense dynamic between the two of them that is that's at the core of this movie overall with um thong isn't um being this being this kind of um you know uh decoration that they each can have and she kind of largely it's tossed around um between the two of them and it also like that i think that my only criticism of this movie is that i don't think they should have started the movie showing and you haven't mentioned i don't think the end have you so i can't remember in your summary but it's like i wouldn't have started with showing the ending at the beginning i don't think i don't know if that added anything to it i i think it like might have been better to just get into the movie and leave you wondering rather than kind of telling you to some degree where you're heading and that would be my only criticism of this movie overall i thought it was really strong powerful performances that really drove um so i mean fong is interesting because she's just somebody that's trying to get by like that's her she's got to live and she you know it's better for her to be taken care of by one man than kind of like what fraser's character alludes to is that you know she's gonna have to go work in like the you know be a a prostitute basically if if there's not someone taking care of her Mm -hmm. so for kane she's just escapism like it's it's hedonism for him because he has her you know she's his live-in like paramour and she's feeding him opium like pipes you know every night so he can like do opium and sort of forget his his life at home um whereas for pile's character she's just a token of his idealism like she's a visual representation of his commitment to try and like change vietnam or like save it in his own way mm-hmm. um and they're both pretty disgusting in their own right in in that respect so yeah um yeah i don't know yeah solid movie though uh, really you know really like really powerful scenes in a in a really well done movie um yeah th- it's this and the painted veil i think is the year before this um both really really great depictions of southeast asia around the same time mm-hmm. um yeah graham green is awesome too if you're interested in reading you should um yeah check, check it out. out yeah yeah um all right so number two on your list is paul thomas anderson's punch drunk glove it stars adam sandler emily watson philip seymour hoffman has a 79 percent from critics 77 from audiences so you want to briefly tell us a little bit about this and uh why it made the list this is um i really struggled with whether or not this was my number one movie or not um and i ultimately went with the number one movie just because i think that it's a little more I don't, I don't think interesting is the right word. 
Um, but there's definitely like some more complexity. But anyway, um, it's a very small movie in a lot of ways. It's a character study of um, uh, Adam Sandler's Barry Egan character, who's socially awkward, if not autistic. Um, yeah. Guy who's lived his whole life sort of at the mercy of his seven sisters who are bullies kind of and treat him either with sympathy or um pity or just completely antagonistic towards him uh he runs a a plunger business i guess like decorative plungers i suppose is what it is uh with louis guzman as his employee um and has this idea that he's going to use this healthy choice promotion for American Airlines miles, frequent flyer miles, by buying the least expensive healthy choice thing he can and then redeeming the miles that are actually worth more in flight value than the stuff that he's buying. And he buys, shit, hundreds of dollars of pudding yes. in order to redeem these miles and eventually thousands of dollars of pudding. Um, so... He's lonely and he's sad and he doesn't really have anyone to talk to. And that's kind of the basic premise of the beginning. Um, he meets this uh, British woman briefly um, who he's attracted to and but kind of unable to talk to because of his social awkwardness. Um, it turns out that she's the co-worker of his sister and that she wanted to meet him. Uh, you find that out later. Um, he has an emotional breakdown at a party, a birthday party for one of his sister's where he smashes their uh, French doors out, uh, which is a pretty um, pretty funny scene, and then breaks down in tears with his brother-in-law, who's a dentist, because he just wants someone to talk to. Um, he ends up calling a sex line, where he um, has a really awkward phone sex conversation with a woman, who then turns around and tries to blackmail him into sending him money. Um in the meantime, he meets, like, tr truly meets and falls in love with um, the sister's friend who's, uh, what, what are they, like, insurance adjusters or something? Anyway, she's somebody that travels for her work. Um, he ends up getting extorted by the phone sex woman through the Philip Seymour Hoffman character who's, like, a, a mattress salesman that runs this phone sex line and tries to extort money out of people. Um, so they send like some mercenaries, I guess I want to call them these four brothers who harass, uh, beat up and harass him. Um, he then flies to Hawaii where he spends a few days. Um, fuck. What is her name? Le Lena. I mean, the actress's name. Oh, Emily Watson. Yeah. Emily Watson. But the Emily Watson character where they consummate their relationship and end up kind of falling in love with each other. Um, when they come home, they get sideswiped by the four brothers in a truck. Um, and he beats the shit out of them with a tire iron, which is like so brutal, but hilarious and like so satisfying to watch. And then ends up tracking down the Philip Seymour Hoffman character to Provo, Utah, where he goes and threatens him um, to leave him alone and then ends up reconciling with Watson. Um, who had been in the hospital from their car accident when the truck sideswiped him and 
the implication is that they'll live happily ever after with him traveling using his um frequent flyer miles to follow her wherever right. she goes um because he's in love with her yeah so that description probably sounds ridiculous and not very interesting if you've never seen the movie um but being a pt anderson movie there's a lot of really interesting and kind of amazing like um film techniques in it one of the things that i think is the most brilliant about this movie is anderson's subtle use of soundtrack to kind of create the feeling of mental dissonance that i think is in barry's mind all the time where most of the time there's no soundtrack it's just score mm-hmm. and the score is like this really like orally dissonant uh fuck like lounge jazz kind of it's just like bebop all over the place and from the standpoint of the viewer you're never really given the chance to like have any kind of peace in mm-hmm. you know through your ears or in your mind because it's just constant like noise and sound and then they play this they play a song with another thing that i think is like really fascinating is they use a song from robert altman's popeye adaptation um mm-hmm. about it's it's an olive oil song um he needs and it, me, yeah. yeah he needs me and it goes on forever like it, it uh-huh. lasts for so long and it's like i don't i don't know if he's looping the song or if it really is as long as it is or it just feels really it's a, long it's, it's a remix i know so of the of the original so I, I know that uh john bryan who did all the score work on this um did mess around with it so probably yeah but there's just this crazy like never-ending loop of shelly duvall like singing in her nasally olive oil voice mm-hmm. um and again it's just it's so it's it's so amazing how anderson just completely understands sound in movies and really i i think i think pt anderson is visually maybe my favorite director of the past 30 years and Mm -hmm. definitely in terms of the way that he can set a scene and the way he can just sort of like build your interest in these characters um because he pulls a performance out of sandler that's amazing as barry egan yes um but it's 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 anderson's just innate knowledge of what should be playing at any given time and i to me his the most perfect example of that is in boogie nights um i think boogie nights might be the best score slash soundtrack of all time sometimes um especially like every time i watch that movie just how perfect like it never feels forced but every song is like perfect in the respect of you know how it fits with the scene and it's the same thing here like these sounds like he wants you to feel crazy like barry feels crazy like he wants you to feel the tension and the confusion and just like the the buzz inside barry's head and it's it's something that I think a lot of people try to do when they, you know, filmmakers try to do is to make you feel crazy. Like a person, you know, one of their characters feels crazy Mm -hmm. and it's really difficult to do, but I put this on par with Henry portrait of a serial killer in terms of like 
making you feel like that character feels or like mm. making you understand that character's insanity to a point where like you're sucked into that world too mm-hmm. and barry live you know it's it's funny because it, it's amazing the way that anderson films this movie in the sense that almost every single scene is set in a drab colorless environment yeah, so there's lo- lots of whites yeah very very little where it's all very utilitarian mm-hmm. very um institutional almost Mm -hmm. even his home and her apartment building they don't there's no like real warmth or like humanity to it but he puts barry in this blue suit that barry wears in every scene Mm -hmm. it's like bright blue button-up suit where barry is like pushing color into his own life and then the other thing that i i really think is just like a fantastic like visual like I don't know metaphor film technique is is the the colors that he does to do like fades and wipes mm. instead of just like doing scene transitions it's like it's almost like that's what's in barry's mind like that combination of just these like dissonant sounds and flashing like muted almost like pastel colors that just kind of flash across the screen to show like shifts in Barry's mind. It's just um it's yeah. it's it's pretty amazing. And the other the other filmmaking thing he does to add on to that, um, that I think works really well with like the what did you say, utilitarian like um settings is for the first time in any of his movies really, he starts shooting in long shots a lot more in this movie. Um so Barry's always kind of being engulfed by the screen itself and by that kind of sterile like um scenery like again lots of whites again you mentioned the blue suit and how he stands out against that um background a lot um grays blues you know um sorry grays whites and that kind of stuff and i think it creates this effect that like how small barry feels a lot of times because of I don't know and diagnose him but yeah like some sort of like neurodivergency spectrum um type thing that's going on with with the character um but yeah i mean he's he's using the thing is it's interesting about this movie watching all these years again late all the all these years later is that it is so different from the two previous movies that got him acclaim in boogie nights and magnolia and it acts as oddly enough as a good bridge to the the next part of his career where he starts moving into things like there will be blood um you know uh what's the one with daniel day lewis phantom uh, thread phantom thread where he starts filming more classically um and like almost like filming to go with the characters and the story and stuff like that and he's thinking it through a bit more um uh but yeah, it's it's an interesting film to look at just from his filmmaking techniques and prowess as he develops transitioning into what I would call a much more Kubrick-esque um, part of his career um, that comes in the next 10 years after this, um, where he's filming much more slowly and classically um, as opposed to the kind of chaos and kinetic nature of the filmmaking in his earlier works. Um, But you're right. I mean, what a master of sound this guy is. I mean, he's just 
I did not expect to like this movie. Uh, it's the second time I've seen it ever. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Like, I absolutely loved watching this movie again, and I was surprised by how much I loved watching it. So, I don't know if you remember this, and I, I can't remember the exact circumstance, but I'll tell you my personal memory, and you can tell me what your personal memory is. Mm-hmm. We were both huge fans of Magnolia, Boogie Nights. Like, we, we love those movies. Yeah. I never saw this movie like I didn't see it when it came out I kind of ignored it um I didn't really have any interest in it when it first came out and this was a movie that when so you and I used to do these trips every Monday we would go to um Borders and then Best Buy and then we would go get coffee Mm -hmm. um and I would buy movies when we would go and I randomly like it was it was on sale at Best Buy for super cheap. It was the cardboard, like, gatefold um, DVD version of it. Um, yeah, I had it too. Yeah. And I just randomly bought it because I figured, like, well, you know, love P.T. Anderson, might as well. It's only an hour and a half long. Might as well just watch it. Um, and was so blown away by how much I loved everything about it. Like, how brilliant I thought it was. And... Like, I couldn't believe that I had never watched it before, but it was one of those things where I, for whatever reason, I just kind of dismissed it outright. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I really felt like that same affection for it, watching it again this time. Um, we're just like, I, I, I love him as a character and like, you feel that sense of empathy for him. Yeah. just in like his own like insanity kind of and i don't know it's 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 a really great performance it's a really interesting and well-written character yeah that doesn't do it it never tries to diagnose him and never tries no. to pigeonhole him as you know where you should feel like any kind of like pity for him he's his own man and he understands who he is and it's just it's 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 really yeah i mean the only things you can take away from it character wise is obviously i think too much like the din of things disturbs him like he he definitely has an oral um oral problems with like too much noise and too much like you know um which definitely fits into a number of different like types of neurodivergency, but you're right. He doesn't like try to like necessarily, um, you know, diagnose him. Um, but I do find it, the thing I always found most interesting, and I know I've read Ebert talks about it, how it deconstructs Sandler's characters and like that Anderson's trying to deconstruct Sandler's work from the, the, the comedy work from the nineties. I don't think he's doing that so deconstructing so much as I think he saw something real inside of those characters um like that 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 hostility that Sandler kind of comes out with there's that there's a realness and a rawness to that hostility that's masked inside a comedy and I think he realized that if he could have him like downplay the like the quirkiness and still get some of that hostility coming through he could create a pretty interesting character and i think it's another aspect of anderson that he maybe isn't giving credit for because he surrounds himself with such good actors is he gets good performances out of people every single fucking time yeah um and 
uh, this is just another example. I mean, I this starts Sandler's dramatic career. Um, this movie, like him getting opportunities. And I would still argue to this day that it's probably his best role, perhaps outside of Uncut Gems, but I don't like Uncut Gems. And I like this movie, so I'll go with this movie. But I can't deny that he's fucking excellent in Uncut Gems um, from an acting standpoint of playing that character. But um, that's... I just don't like that movie. So, but I, I would argue this is his best role that he's ever had. Yeah, fucking uncut gems is trash. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it's a pretty brilliant performance. I think you're right. It like it's a perfect encapsulation of the rage of Happy Gilmore without the comedy of Happy Gilmore. Yeah, you know, it's the guy that's it's he sees the sad clown behind all of it. I think is I guess what I'm trying to get out to use a the guy that's cursing at the you know golf ball to get in the hole Mm -hmm. is a guy that has more problems than you know maybe you shouldn't laugh at him so much as try and understand them or at least try to empathize with him so right right um and i'll quickly say only five minutes of screen time or something like that but damn did we not lose somebody when we lost philip seymour oh yeah like yeah, Jesus, like what a hilarious, like despicable character <laughs> that he like creates in five minutes of screen time. Yeah, like walk away, fucking pervert. Fuck, can... What's what's the line? Shit, what does he uh, say to it? Uh, it's um, hold on, let me. See. It's not we're good. It's uh, damn, I can't remember. It's so funny. It's been a couple weeks since I watched it. Um, I just watched it last night and I already forgotten everything because I'm old and <laughs> yeah, I can't see it. Yeah, my brain is fogged with work. Right. Um, that's that. That's that. That's that. Yep. Right. You're right. That that that. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here, pervert. Right. <laughs> that's that. That's that. <laughs> um, I warned you. And you know he. I'm pretty sure. In that scene, even, and I'll shut up about this movie. I could talk about this movie, I think, for a while from a filmmaking standpoint. It's one of the times I wish we had visuals. I'm pretty sure he uses a technique that Wells uses, like in Kane, where when Egan turns around oh, and, he is, does. and is like, didn't I warn you, and takes a couple steps towards the camera, that the camera kind of like when it films um, yeah, it's uh, the Kane. Rec, it's, it's the rack focus. Yeah, but it like moves backwards with him. Yeah. Like, you know, like to show that energy of movement, like the camera just slowly moves backwards and it's fucking amazing. Like, uh, and then you just have that small little man like standing far away. Like, that's that. Like, um, fucking great. Great. Um, yeah. Great movie. It really is. Um, it was, it was the most pleasurable movie to watch again out of this whole list. Agreed. Um, yeah. All right, so number one on your list is Adaptation, directed by Spike Jones, written by Charlie Kaufman, stars Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, number of others, obviously, in the sporting cast. Has 91% from critics, 85% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this? And you have talked about this before uh, positively on Quick Cage number 57 um, yeah. back in the archives. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit 
about uh, this quickly and then uh, why you made it number one on the list overall. Yeah, I, I won't go into it too much because we yeah. do talk about it a lot yeah. in that episode. But um, weirdly autobiographical Charlie Kaufman movie um, about Charlie Kaufman and his fictionalized uh, twin brother um, with Charlie Kaufman trying to figure out how to write a film adaptation of, um, what is it, Wade Oleander, I guess? No, the Wild Orchid. Oh, Wild Orchid, right. Yeah um brilliant performance by cage i think i think i said this at the time and i think i've said this since that i i feel like this is probably his best performance um work at thief not wild work at right yeah. um you know there's just a real brilliance in the way the cage portrays uh both kaufman brothers charlie and daniel kaufman um as really like equal sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And I guess that Charlie Kaufman, when he wrote it, was writing it sort of as almost like both sides of himself, like this guy that had the capability to be like just this crass commercial screenwriter who could just write some trite movie that could sell for six figures. And then a guy who was so thoughtful and neurotic that he was obsessing over how to basically adapt this unfilmable book to um, to the screen. Um, I, Spike Jones is weird to me, and I think that he's a pretty, I don't know, underrated, but I feel like maybe, maybe people take for granted like how good he is at directing. Um, because I think he's so kind of all over the place and so quirky in the way that he makes stuff. But you look at like being John Malkovich in this movie. Um, it's crazy that he has four. It's so crazy. And then where the wild things are, which I don't know. I mean, I guess I feel like that's a good adaptation. Um, it was sort of outside the realm of when Frankie was really into watching those movies. So. Um, but her, which is a really great movie, just mm-hmm. and Synecdoche, uh, New York. He produced that, I think. Yeah. Um, but this is it's poignant and it's funny and it's awkward without ever being damning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting portrayal of how your perspective, I guess, can be clouded by your closeness to another person whereas other people don't see them the same way Mm -hmm. um because people have a lot of affection and appreciation for daniel um whereas charlie is just very slovenly kind of and neurotic but brilliant in his own way but doubts himself so much that he kind of comes off as being a doofus whereas daniel is probably a doofus but comes off as being like self-confident and self-assured so it's uh, really funny moments some really poignant moments to it um and again an incredible performance times two by nicholas cage um one of the highlights for me of doing the you know the quick cage was watching this movie mm-hmm. uh having never never seen it in its entirety until that moment um that night that i watched it so and just really being kind of blown away by the whole thing and how how great of a movie it was. That's actually to me like to kind of finish 
you know, 2002. Um, one of the greatest things about doing the podcast is like, I always love the idea of discovering movies and I feel great when I find a movie I never, I've never seen before and mm-hmm. doing stuff like watching the quick cage and even the spin chagrin to an extent. Cause most of the time when we do our main episode podcast, it's all movies that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever, we've ever done one where I have never seen the movie and still put it on a list. Mm-hmm. But like, I love those podcasts that we do that are more like extemporaneous kind of where I'm seeing something for the first time and like, yeah. I can still be like blown away by mm-hmm. a performance or like a directorial effort or whatever. Um, and that's how I felt here. And just, I, I love punch drunk love and I, I, legitimately think the punch drug love is the better movie but i think adaptation is so pure and fun and it's just like the perfect magic of movie making kind of movie yeah um with everything including the performances and the direction and the writing and Mm -hmm. you know just the feeling you get from watching it it's 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 a fantastic film so yeah do you think do you think Spike Jones is like the greatest music video director ever? I mean that's um I mean I know that's that's a like, almost like a loaded question maybe to some degree or something like or putting you on the spot or but it's like you look the dude did Buddy Holly. The dude did Sabotage and Sure Shot. I'm trying, I'm just looking at thinking about the videos. He did the It's Also Quiet video for Bjork. Like, you think of, like, you know, um, there was something else I saw. It's all about the Benjamins. Um, no, he did 100% by Sonic Youth. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cannonball by the like, Breeders. You just think about the video, Weapon of, the Weapon of Choice, which is a famous one, and it's actually like made a comeback. Um, on tiktok recently like with uh using like the walk and dance um for different stuff like i mean you just think in terms of like iconic videos damn it's pretty crazy i thought spike jones did uh passing me by was that wrong Mm mm-hmm No, I can't remember who did Passing By. Um, Wild Orchid is a Zalman King movie. By the way. Oh my god, he did the MC 900 foot Jesus. <laughs> Feel the pain, yeah. Let's see, sounds good. Oh, he did the Daughters of the Chaos. I like that. That's Luscious Jackson, one of their first mm-hmm. songs. Ditch Digger, that's a really good video. Yeah, Car Song, The Elastica. Sanji is who did Passing Me By. Which I do not recognize any of these. Crush with Eyeliner, which is like the only good song off that. uh... Well, that and I guess What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Hmm. It's a good song but yeah um i hadn't seen this roughly since it came out and um adaptation i mean and it it, it still held up i enjoyed watching oh it. you know what it is he did What's he up? did drop 
by far mm. side. Yep, that's what I'm thinking of. Yep, you're right. But yeah, it, it was it was a it was an enjoyable movie to watch. I think you're right. There's there's like a feeling. Did you say pure? There's like a feeling of pureness, like to yeah. the movie in some ways, and I think a lot of it comes through like an honesty and I'm not going to be able to explain this well, but there's an honesty, I think from Kaufman in the writing of this about like the struggles of adapting something and like how you get in your own head about it. And I think that comes across like on the screen um, in a really good performance by cage. Um, Like I, I shit on Nick cage a lot. I did a lot through the quick cage. So did you, but I mean, I think you have a little bit more, respect for him um you lived with him more than i think i have so i think i tend to like you know uh malign him a lot more and no it's 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 a great performance from cage and something that's like right up his alley and i think he does it extremely well and really brings that whole dynamic that, that fictional but real inner dynamic to life through those two characters and um no it's it's a really solid movie and i think it's a really fun movie and i the idea that it's still kind of an adaptation of that book is wild as well and it's like it gets so meta at times um with different aspects of like what's real and what's not and it's just a hell of a fun movie and Streep's really good in it too um and so is Chris Cooper, who I think won an Oscar, if I remember correctly, for this, uh, which is weird. But um, Cooper's a really um, brings that character into like a really uh, sympathetic. Oh, and talk about power of scenes. That scene, which if I think back to like the t- 2002, maybe that's where so many people started stealing it from, is when he backs out of the driveway and there's the car crash with his with his wife and um everything like the the filming of that um horrifying impactful um and so many people use that now um as a way to film cars and i don't know if that was like the first one that i'm sure people did it before spike jones did it here but it's like the go-to now for sudden unseen car crashes um in so many ways and uh yeah and just the scene that like really um grounds that movie i think in something that's very real um in terms of emotion yeah so yes it's it's crazy like how good he is at that and it's you look at his filmography and he's just he does stuff constantly it's just that he's not always making movies it's like other things like he's still he's still filming like skateboarding videos in the (laughs) mid-2000s and right right still producing jackass and yeah just a guy that i think genuinely loves what he loves and that's why like all of his stuff is so effective is because it's from his heart like he's not just doing something to earn a paycheck he's doing it because i think it's what he really wants to do oh yeah and you look at all of his commercials he's constantly doing shit like all the time he has tons of commercials too i'm not as up on commercials but um but he's got tons of them i mean i don't know but yeah so yeah i always enjoy the the 2000 list when we've done them so far 2000 2001 2002 is is because it's a decade that we don't get into that often a lot of times um it feels like like if it hadn't been for the quick cage for these movies we would have never talked about before um and it feels like it's that way every 2000s list 70 
70s lists kind of end up being the same um often but not quite as often and um i just think that's because of like recency and like we tend to go like if we look at the best of something it tends to skew a little older but i always enjoy these 2000s lists a lot which is why i'm also looking forward to your horror lists in the 2000s next year because um while definitely a lot of things have made your horror lists from the 2000s we've never really kind of Shit. really gotten to the nitty-gritty I gotta, um, I gotta send you the first one of them in like probably a week. Um, sure, or um, sooner, Ethan. <laughs> uh, and a fresh five list. Yeah. Um, a completed like fresh five list, I guess. I, I, I think I got my five. Okay. Um, I watched one of them already. I think so. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, I, I, and then finally, I do understand what you mean about like discovering things, and I wish we could do something uh, that wasn't as tongue-in-cheek as like the quick cage or the spin chagrin at some point of watching new movie like ha- like giving you the opportunity to watch something and like discover something more often um i i would like to think about that at some point like so it's not things you've already seen or things that like you're going to watch only to possibly ridicule them in some way or like you know um because it's like, I, yeah, there, there's nothing more exciting than like sitting down watching a movie, not knowing much about it, and like being like, you know, really enjoying the movie and really being blown away by it. Um, sure. So, all right. Well, um, another year in the books, Frank. Um, we move on to 2023 and we start with the um, the deep dive and watch along of Iced next week so um starting off 2023 with a with a with a crowd favorite and a bang um indeed but it'll be fun regardless um if you have not watched um iced ever iced is free on youtube um i would just type in ice 1988 um and if you watch it uh then you can go ahead and um you know have a little bit of background before we talk about it and then we're going to watch along with it um as well and uh you can you can see it through uh orion wallmakers and ours perspective so thank you for listening happy new year everyone have a good week deuces